Well, brothers and sisters, take your Bibles and turn them open to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We will have a word of prayer and then I will begin reading at verse 18 and read through verse 30. Let's pray together. Now, blessed Almighty God, again we come before you in the sweet and precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Father, we ask you to give us insight, understanding, give us, Lord, eyes to see, Lord, what's going on in this text. Help us to see the that trust that leads to destruction and let us compare that with what we trust, the things we trust in our own lives. Lord, help us to examine the rich young ruler and compare ourselves with him so that we might, Lord, even this day amend our ways, amend, Lord, any deficiencies of of thought, word, and deed that we might find again solely resting upon your mercies and grace, not leaning in our own works, Lord, or even our own understanding, but in all of our ways acknowledging you. So, Father, make your mercy known, make your grace known. Help us, O Lord. Cast a, cast away from us, Lord, any self-righteousness. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen, amen. I'm gonna begin reading at verse 18. A ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess, distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they heard, and and they who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. And Peter said, behold, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife, our brothers, our parents, our children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, this is part two of this text this Sunday morning and last week we were, we were able to look at the rich young ruler sort of in its uh, macro text and looking at how he came to Jesus and the things that were highlighted in the text of his good works and whatnot and we focused on that, well, being good wasn't good enough to inherit eternal life. Now, that was last week, and you can go back and listen to that sermon if you missed it. This week, we're going to look at the ruler's spurious confidence, or, well, what happens when the faith you have doesn't save? 
The rich young ruler did possess a level and degree of confidence and faith, even though we're going to look at how it was shaken to some degree, which brought him to Jesus to begin with. So I want to address this morning and hone in and focus on true faith as opposed to misplaced faith. True faith as opposed to misplaced faith. And out of that, I want to draw some applications to assurance and confidence. Well, let's look at the text itself and let's begin looking at the ruler's faith or his confidence or his trust. I suggested last week, and again, it's just educated speculation that somehow the rich young ruler had come in contact with the gospel, the teaching of the kingdom, possibly even with Jesus himself. Uh, Chapter 19 of Matthew speaks of Jesus being in the home of a Pharisee and engaged in debate over divorce and probably other topics as well. And with Jesus is leaving the house, he's going to Jerusalem, this, this young, rich ruler runs up to Jesus, and as the other gospels um, teach, falls down before Jesus, asking this very important question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Matthew focuses on what, what, what duty do I need to perform? Matthew highlights that whatever this teaching or Whatever this engagement was with the truth of Scripture, the ruler still comes and he's asking this question, what is it I lack? There's something that I'm lacking, so what do I need to add? What else can I add to merit eternal life? A very important question, a question that is, Well, one that we have at some point asked in our lives, if we've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, we have at some point begun to ponder what it is to, well, receive heaven, go to heaven, what it is to have that promise of heaven, what uh, to, to understand the fear of eternal damnation and punishment, all those things that come with encountering the gospel from scripture, the truth of his, God's holy word. But what is it? There was something that this ruler believed he lacked. In some way, his confidence had become shaken. He f- which drove him to run to Jesus to sort of interrupt his traveling to Jerusalem to ask him this question. At some some level, in some degree, the ruler had become shaken in his confidence. Now, the truth has the tendency to do that. God's word has a tendency of shaking the foundations of people their confidence, the things they trust in. Now, that doesn't mean that what transpires after that is always eternal life or saving faith or in any way possessing the kingdom of heaven. The scriptures teach us that, well, many are shook by the word of God. Many come into contact with the word of God and and they are shook in their confidence and in those foundations that they rest in. And the the Bible teaches us this. Let's look at Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. We spent some time here many months ago looking at the parable of the sower. And in Jesus is teaching us the different 
hearers of the gospel, those who come in contact with the truth and the different effects it has on them. And yet, this is how we are to know and understand that there are what we might call the common operations of God upon mankind. And we see this in this parable. I'm going to skip the teaching of the parable and go to the explanation of the parable. So look there with me at verse 18. Now Jesus, notice what he says. He's, he's being asked a question and so now he's fixing to explain it to his disciples. He says, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. And this is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. And the one on whom seed was sown on rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no firm root in himself. But is only temporary, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately falls away. And let's get a third one. Verse 22, and the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Now here's the thing. Now the rich young ruler never possessed a profession of Christ. He's not in the second or third category. He seems to be one that has gotten a curiosity, an interest in the things of God, in this kingdom of God. How do I know that I possess well, what I've been hearing about the kingdom? What is it I lack? What do I need to add to my life? What things do I need to add? What regiment, what duty, what works do I need to add to my life so that I secure for myself that everlasting eternal life? That's his question. That's the curiosity that's been raised in him. And it, to me, it's like the first category there. He has this interest and this curiosity and it has driven him to run out to Jesus and throw himself on the ground on his knees and make a dramatic impression upon Christ. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit everlasting life? I would say that the confidence that this young man has in running out to Jesus was just short-lived, as we'll see. As the text tells us, we, we know the end of the, of the encounter, don't we? Uh, the text tells us that the young man goes away well, very sad. So we know the end of the encounter but this initial curiosity and interest is driving him to go and throw himself down before Jesus and even confess in degree that Jesus is a good teacher and he would have an answer to my question. And of course, Jesus did have an answer. It just wasn't one he was willing to accept. Now, beloved, this rich young ruler reminds me of so many church members. Good people, religious. They believe in God. They believe in everlasting life. They believe in heaven, thus believing in hell. They believe in the punishment of sin. They believe in judgment. They believe in obeying God's laws. And yet they do not possess the faith that guarantees them everlasting life. And in that sense, what we mainly and mostly deal with is a very spurious faith. And when I say spurious, I mean it's, it's not genuine. It's not genuine. He seems to be very sincere. He seems to be upright. 
dedicated to integrity, dedicated to this, this, this outward discipline of life, if you will, making the right choices, being respectful to authority. Uh, I mean, he's the, he is this, this rich young ruler based upon the text is someone certainly that we can, well, trust him around our daughters and our wives. We can trust him with our possessions. He's not going to live a lustful life. He's not going to be a whoremonger. He's not going to be an adulterer. He chooses to stay away from those things. He's not going to be a thief. He's not a murderer. I mean, he is not a liar. You know, we typically call this kind of person kind of the salt of the earth kind of people. People that are just, well, outwardly trustworthy. People that you can trust your home to when you go on vacation. People that you trust your finances to, uh, your financial planner or whatnot. People you trust your children with when you allow them to babysit your, well, your sweet, precious little ones. And this strikes me as the majority of so many people in church. Well, what is it? What is it about his faith that's lacking? What is it about his confidence? And what I want to do is, as we identify these things, I want us to compare our faith with what he lacks. So that we can see it in ourselves. Well, first of all, as I said, it's spurious. It's not genuine. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, he certainly lacked assurance because he he's shaken. He is shook. He has been shaken. He lacks the confidence now, whatever it was he heard, that he possesses eternal life. Now, brothers and sisters, let me say this about saving faith. There is an element of confidence and assurance that comes with saving faith. How? How? Well, beloved, listen to me. You've got a precious invitation of Jesus to come, to believe, to repent and put your faith in him and you will receive everlasting life. Come and believe in me and you will have life eternal. There is an element of confidence and trust that's needed just to come to the very promises of God, isn't there? We would be pitiful people if we would just have a faith that's not based on any confidence whatever. So we must bring a degree and level of confidence when we come to Christ. That number one, he's not lying when he invites us to come. He's not going to trick us. I do an old bait and switch. Oh, I know the promise, but it didn't apply to you. He did not do that. He didn't treat us that way. And beloved, uh, listen, let me take your Bibles, turn to Galatians 2. Now, before I read from verse 20, I want, I want to say this about the Apostle Paul. He wasn't perfect. He was a man just like we are. He was in the flesh. He was flesh and blood. He, he, he struggled. He gives a testimony of his struggle in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We know that he had a bitter engagement with John Mark. He was a sinner saved by grace. But now notice his confession. Look at verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. 
And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, what do I want to point out in that text to you this morning? Notice how emphatic it is. Paul is saying, I know in whom I have put my faith and I know him, I believe in him and he lives in me. Paul didn't wake up one day and was saved and the next day go, I don't don't think I'm not saved, wake up and the next day saved, next day I don't think I'm saved, next day saved. No, that's not the life that Paul lived. There's certainly an ebb and flow and a, a, a rhythmic up and down per se, but not when it comes to this saving grace. Not when it comes to the very essence of assurance. There's a, there is a common feature to assurance that can be shaken, but not the essence of it. Because the essence of our assurance in Christ rests upon Christ. It rests upon his promise. It rests upon the infallible word of God and that holy, divine, well, irrevocable invitation to come and have everlasting life. In one sense, you see, where the rich young ruler is similar to the Pharisee that's in, above the text in uh, Luke 18, but you also see that he's unlike the publican who just came with a pile of sin and said, have mercy upon me, God, the sinner. The publican came before God with his sin because he believed there was a promise of forgiveness. Right? Brothers and sisters, didn't you come to Christ because you believed he would forgive you if you confessed your sins? Didn't you? Didn't you come to Christ when you understood that what he was working in you, this faith, this, this mystery, this secret faith that he worked in you, that you were ready to confess and believe and trust in him. Isn't that why you came to Christ? Because you were willing to do that. You were willing to confess him. You were willing to say, I now abandon myself and I put my trust in him. That's the motivation for even coming to Christ. We, I'm going to repeat it because it bears repeating. We would be pitiful people if we really didn't believe Jesus was a saving Savior and we came to him anyway. Not knowing that he was going to keep his word. Now, you may not know this, but that sounds like the God of, well, Islam. Allah is a very spurious God. He wakes up on one side of the bed or the other, and then you never know what you're going to get with Allah. That's not the way it is with the true and living God. It's not that way with Jesus Christ. So my point is, first, that this ruler, his lack of assurance stems from his spurious faith. It's flowing out of his, his putting his trust in the wrong things. So what kind, let's, let's look at a few more other scriptures. My goal is not certainly to convince anyone that does not know Christ that they do know Christ. But what I want you to do this morning, if you're here and you do know Christ, I want you to have a confidence in what, and and, and I want to show you where that confidence lies. And it's not in your works. It's upon those promises of God. It's upon the infallible truth of God's word. And 
we see these texts of Scripture. First John chapter 5. First John chapter 5. Look at verse 13. And this is not the only place that, uh, first, that John deals with this in this epistle, but he deals with it in chapter 2 and chapter 3, and this is sort of, sort of that accumulative statement. He says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. And he says in verse 14, and this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, look at how emphatic John addresses assurance and confidence. We know we have eternal life, not maybe, not might, not, well, if this, if that, we know we have eternal life for those who believe in the name of the Son of God. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Again, this is a letter that was written to uh, the dysphoria, the, the, the displaced Jews, these Hebrews. And the author of this letter is wanting to encourage them not to apostatize from the faith, but to hold fast their profession of faith. Now, look at verse 19. I'm going to read through um, verse 25 but, and tie some things together. It says, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence, now notice that word, to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, and by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Brothers and sisters, it's verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The rich young ruler lacked that. He didn't have that confidence. He didn't have that assurance. Whatever he encountered, when he encountered the gospel, when he encountered the teaching of the kingdom, it shook him to the point where he began to ponder, well, what must I do to have this kingdom? Look at Romans chapter 8. This is another thing he lacked. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Well, the reason we know that the rich young ruler lacked genuine faith is because he didn't have this degree of confidence. He, did, he lacked the witness of the Holy Spirit. He didn't have that assurance that he was a child of God, even though he was a ruler among the Hebrews. He was in the covenant people as a member, of the outer covenant people of God, if you will. He had, all, he had full access to the oracles of God, the Old Testament, the teaching of the Old Testament. But he never truly listened to the teaching of the Old Testament. 
He was part of this legalistic system that the Pharisees had constructed and committed themselves to. And that legalistic system was built upon a works righteousness. In fact, let me show you how he missed it. If you want, just turn to Isaiah chapter 55. That is, nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere in the Old Testament can it be read and studied and understood to teach works righteousness. And in that sense, we reject and deny all of that Old Test or all of that teaching of that dispensational system that taught that, well, the Old Testament teaches a work salvation, but the New Testament teaches salvation by grace. It does not. The whole scriptures, the whole counsel of God's word teaches after the fall of Adam and Eve in that covenant of works that it is all by God's grace. And we see this beautiful, wonderful picture here, this invitation in Isaiah 55. Look at verse one. Ho, everyone who thirsts comes to the waters. And if you have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. What is this? What, what, what is this verse one? What is this an invitation to? Salvation. That's what it is. It's a, it, it, notice the metaphors. Everyone who thirsts come to the waters. What did Jesus tell the woman at the well in John 4? If you knew the water I offer you, you would drink of it and never thirst again. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about everlasting life. He says, and you have no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine, milk without money and without cost. Why? Because it's by grace. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. It's by grace. It's a gift. Look at verse 2. Why do you spend money? For what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Listen, let's apply that verse too to the rich young ruler. In all of his years of obeying the law of God, he's not satisfied. His soul's not satisfied. There is still something lacking in his life. He has, cre- he, he has committed himself to this life of integrity and morality. And yet, and yet, he has been so moved by the gospel that he comes and throws himself down in front of Jesus. And he says, what else can I do? What must I do to receive everlasting life? And this is, this is similar to what he has done. He has spent money for what is not bread. It wasn't that obeying God's law was somehow evil and bad. It's the context of him obeying the law. The context of him obeying the law was that he might earn for himself everlasting life, something that can't be bought, earned, or deserved by any sinner. And for this reason, he's to be pitied. And for this reason, Jesus did pity him. Jesus dealt tenderly with him. You could tell Jesus is drawing him out when Jesus says, well, why do you call me good? There is only one good. Jesus is drawing this young man out. And we'll look at that in the weeks to come. So brothers and sisters, he lacked this assurance that comes with faith, true faith. You say, well, pastor, I struggle with assurance. Are you saying I don't have saving faith? Well, well, brothers and sisters, what I've just described to you is I hope you didn't struggle with believing that God keeps his promises. That, That Certainly you don't believe God lied to you. 
You don't believe that God did a bait and switch, do you? Now, there are some effects. There are some things that we can participate in that can affect our assurance. Sin. Lacking in the usefulness of the means of grace. When we neglect the means that God has ordained for us to foster and to, to, to grow our assurance in faith, when we neglect those things, yes, it can have an effect upon that assurance. But that assurance can never be diminished because that assurance rests upon the infallible promises of Almighty God in His Son, Jesus Look at Hebrews chapter 6. And again, the writer of Hebrews, he begins to rebuke um, these Hebrews, they were beginning to neglect the means of grace. You find that over in chapter 5, verse 11 and following into chapter 6. He gives a parable of, of, of what it looks like when, when faith receives the word of God and produces fruit. But verse 9 and following is what I want to address this morning. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. Though I've said these things, I am confident, I have, I'm convinced that there are better things true of you. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Now let me stop there. He doesn't say you need to do these works so that you have assurance. That's not what he says. That's not what he says. He says your diligence brings your assurance to its fullness. There's a difference. Brothers and sisters, saving faith comes with assurance. It comes with assurance. It comes with that childish belief and understanding and trust in the very promise that if you believe and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And then that faith, as Paul says in Corinthians, worketh through love. Faith worketh through love, Paul says, I believe chapter 13, 1 Corinthians 13. What he is saying is it's not a bare conjecture. It's not just some intellectual understanding. That's the difference in what we might call fide and fiducia. It's not just an assent. Oh, I believe that, well, like the rich young ruler, I believe in God, I believe in moral commandments, I believe in heaven, I believe in hell. He had that intellectual assent, but he didn't have fiducia. He didn't have confidence and trust. He wasn't resting in those things. What he rested in was his own works. What he trusted in was his own obedience and that's why he was left naked and unassured of everlasting life because beloved, when you build your assurance on your daily activities and obedience, you're gonna be up and down and all around. Why? Because your obedience, well, it moves like a heart beat. It's not, is it consistently upward? No, one day is better than the other. And if your assurance is resting on that, well, you're going to lack it. That's why one day I don't know if I'm saved. The next day I think I'm saved. The next day I don't know if I'm saved. The next day, yeah, I think I am. Because you're focused on the wrong things. The rich young ruler lacked 
correct understanding of what it is to believe in God. Because he lacked believing in Jesus Christ. He said, oh, I believe in God. But he didn't know God's son. John chapter 17 and verse 3. Right? Let's look there. This is eternal life. That they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He lacked the witness of the Spirit. He lacked the true knowledge and understanding. He lacked the proper object of saving faith. Beloved, and now we see his failure. We see his failure, and it's tragic, really, when we look at the rich young ruler and Jesus says, well, okay, don't commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he says, these things I have kept from my youth. How tragic, what a failure is that he still doesn't understand how to be saved. He is still not looking to the true and living God and his son, Jesus Christ. He's still resting and trusting in his own efforts and labors. Now, brothers and sisters, there is a vital place for good works in the Christian life. But they are fruits. They're not the source of confidence. They're fruits. They flow out of that work and grace of Almighty God working in our hearts. Therefore, as Paul said, it is faith working through love. We obey God's commandments because as Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. It is not out of a slavish fear. It is out of this is the God who had grace and mercy upon me like the publican. Have mercy upon me, O God. I am delighted to obey you because you are full of tender mercies and grace. And you washed me and you took away my sins and they were massive. And you continue to wash me as I walk with you in this life. And therefore, my life is a reflection of that mercy that you've shown me. And oh, how I love you. And oh, how I want to display that love in obedience to you. And brothers and sisters... Our last passage, Second Peter. Now I'm going to make some applications, more applications, I should say. But I think I need to explain these things to help us understand them. And this is a text of Scripture that's typically given to those that come to the pastor, to the counselor, or to any mature Christians, and they begin talking about, you know, I just need to, I want to solidify, if you will, this confidence I need in knowing that I have eternal life, that I believe in Jesus. Well, this text, look at the context of it. Look at verse 4. Well, let me back up. Verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So what do we see this? Grace and peace, it's multiplied you where? What's the location of that grace and peace? Where is it found, locative? In knowledge of God and his son Jesus Christ. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, what's Peter building all of this on when he starts talking about this, this work? He's going to deal with this in, in the next verse. What's it resting on? 
the divine promises of God. Look at what it says. His precious and magnificent promises. Brothers, don't miss it. Don't miss that. That's the motivation. That's the motivation of the following in verse 5. For now for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how many times he's mentioned knowledge. And what is that flowing and resting upon? The promises, the magnificent and precious promises of God in Christ to all who believe. That he is the one who enlightens our minds, that he is the one that teaches us. He is the one who instructs. That's what John said. You no longer need a teacher. Why? Because you have an anointing from the Holy One. You see, brothers and sisters, listen, a human preacher, teacher had never convinced you of the gospel. They explained it to you. Who convinced you of the gospel? Who convinced you that it was true? Who convinced you that it was God's message? Who convinced you that it was a precious promises irrevocable in God's sight? Who taught you that? God did. God showed that to you. And that's why These things are meaningful to God's children and they are not to those who are not God's children. We stop here this morning. And brothers and sisters, can you buffet your assurance? Absolutely. Two primary ways that I've already mentioned. Sin, willful, willful neglect of the will of God will buffet your assurance. It will challenge it. It'll cause you to question it. Neglect of not just the means of grace, but neglect of the worship of God, neglect of the praise of God, neglect of singing his praises, neglect of reading his word. The very thing that the Holy Spirit wrote so that you might foster and strengthen the witness in you is the word of God. The very thing that the Holy Spirit, as we confessed, inspired and moved men to write so that we would have a record and divine, infallible testimony of God's will and precious promises. The Holy Spirit put it in writing. What did we already confess in chapter Paragraph one of the Westminster Confession, that it so pleased God to put it in writing. So what? The church could be strengthened against the wiles and temptations and challenges of Satan in this world. That we could read it, that we would have it in our possession. And that's why it's no small thing, beloved, that you own a Bible And what a terrible testimony it is for you to have a Bible and to own a Bible and never use it. And you wonder why you lack assurance. You wonder why your assurance is being challenged. You say, well, I come to worship. Well, do you come with the right heart? Do you come ready to love God when you come? Do you come ready to express your love for God in praise and thanksgiving? Do you come ready to show your love for God when you hug and kiss the cheek of your neighbor sitting here? Do you come ready to testify that whatever the week held for you, whatever it was, God was faithful and true and he kept you. And you come ready to glorify his name. 
you come ready to love him and love God's people. Faith worketh in love. Paul said, if I just had faith without love, I'm nothing but a clanging symbol. Well, you can't have genuine saving faith without love. But there's all kinds of faith out there. But there's only one saving faith, and there's a lot of faith that will never save. And we need to examine this text and other texts like it to make sure we don't walk away from Jesus like the rich young ruler. Very sad. Let's pray. Father, in some ways I felt like I've missed the mark to impress upon, oh Lord, these dear saints and Lord, all of us that, Lord, your promises are sweet, magnificent. They are powerful. And they are our true motivation. These are the things, oh God, we must eat that we might have our assurance fixated upon solid ground, not our works, not even our theology and those things, O oh Lord, as good as those things are and as blessed as those things, the blessings they bring into our lives, Lord, our soul assurance rests upon you and you alone. And you do keep us. And you do discipline us as a father because you love us and you are sanctifying us and you're growing us up. Lord, you don't discipline us to shake our confidence. Lord, you discipline us to prove that we are your children. For your word tells us that you only discipline your children and no one else. Now, Father, take you this word as incomplete as it may be and use it to edify and build up this congregation in Jesus' name, amen.